This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything. And periodically, we tell stories about sports. But as you've come to know, they're not just sports stories, any more than those great stories on ESPN, those 30 for 30 stories, or sports stories. We're going to spend an hour talking about Coach Dean Smith of the University of North Carolina. He passed in 2015, but we are here to remind people of the virtues of this man and stories about this man. If you aren't a coach, you'll still want to listen. If you run a business, if you run a family, if you have any influence at all in your life with other people, you're going to want to learn from the very best about how to lead. And that's what Dean Smith was. He was a leader, he was a teacher, and of course, he was a coach. His basketball bloodlines ran as deep as the Carolina blue sky. His coach at the University of Kansas, Fog Allen, learned the game from the man who invented it and after whom basketball's Hall of Fame is named, James Naismith. Winning was also in Dean Smith's bloodline. Under Coach Allen, he was a backup guard on the Kansas team that won the 1952 NCAA title, and he was runner-up the following year. He scored only one point in those two championship games, but it was from the bench sitting near his coach that a sports giant was birthed. He would go on to mentor two of the next generation's great coaches, fellow Hall of Famers Larry Brown and Roy Williams. Great coaching apples, it turns out. Don't fall far from great coaching trees. Dean Smith was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1931. His dad was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. His mom was a teacher too, but it was from his dad that he learned the value of every human being and their potential. Kansas was a highly segregated state at the time, but that didn't stop his dad from putting a black player, Paul Terry, on his team. In the 1933-34 state tournament, Terry was banned from playing by state officials. Rather than hamper that team's performance, it spurred them on. They ended up winning the state title. When Smith was 15, his family moved to Topeka, where he played basketball, football, and baseball in high school and earned an academic scholarship to the University of Kansas. He would go on to coach briefly at Kansas and at the Air Force. And then came the big shot at North Carolina. He was replacing the legendary Frank McGuire, who had led a team to a 32-0 season and an NCAA championship not long before. Things didn't go very well the first year, Here's one of his players on one of the early teams, legendary NBA player and great college player, Billy Cunningham. To say it was difficult times for him is an understatement. He was being hung in effigy. Uh, The coaches, everyone was questioning his coaching ability, what he was doing, alumni, students. Wasn't very many good things. Matter of fact, I found something from the old Daily Tar Heel, January 13, 1965, and I just took a little portion of it out. It's a quote. Yeah, I know Dean has a big job to do, and if he can't keep up with the traditions of the fine Carolina teams, he should start looking for, a smaller, for smaller shoes to fill. And the bottom says, name withheld. I hope he's here tonight. <laughs> and those were tough years for Coach, and Billy Cunningham continues on Dean Smith's early years. You know, they say you learn more from losing than winning. Well, we made sure he got enough of that. And, and uh, one of the things, though, we taught him is humility, number one. How could you be a cocky, wise guy coaching teams that were eight and nine, 12 and 12, 
you know, didn't make it through the ACC tournament, didn't do, really didn't do very much of anything. So humility, we got that covered for him. <laughs> Loyalty. It was only the players in his immediate family that would talk to him. I mean, no one had anything to do. Coach Smith, they were, all they wanted to do was get someone new in. You know, coaching and recruiting, which it come down to, and you saw that there, is that he learned that either he changed the style and started coaching in the proper way and went out and got some decent players because he surely was tired of watching us. And then that's when things started, and obviously he went on to become, if not the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And by the way, Billy Cunningham was speaking before he sold out Dean Smith Center at the University of North Carolina. This was just days after he died. All the players came back, all the people who knew him, and all the kids. The place was just packed. And we're bringing you parts of these speeches to celebrate this great man's life. Up next was retired president of Converse Sneakers, Mickey Bell, who happened to be graduating, who happened to be a graduate of the class in 1975, and who said Dean would have hated all of this attention. As I look out over this huge crowd, I can't help but think how Coach Smith would absolutely hate this. As you know, he did not like to be center of attention. He did not want to um, um, be in the spotlight. He was a very humble man, and he would never accept or really understand why people came from all over the country and all over the state to be here to honor him. Yet if anybody deserved a celebration, it was Coach Smith. And Mickey Bell then asked the question rhetorically to the crowd, why me? Why am I speaking? When Coach Williams called me last week he and asked, said that he and the family wanted me to speak, I had the same thought that you did when you saw the list of speakers today. Why Mickey Bell? <laughs> For you see, I was not an All-American. I didn't play in the NBA. My jersey is up there, my number, up in the rafters, but some guy named O'Corn came up and put his name on it. <laughs> Besides, when you look at the other speakers here today, they're all legends. Antoine Jameson, Phil Ford, Eric Montross. I said, Coach, didn't you want another star to speak here today? And Roy reminded me that Coach Smith gave e equal treatment to every player, from a walk-on to a superstar. Yes, said, yes, Roy said, all the speakers achieve great basketball uh, uh, accomplishments. But everyone thought it'd be great to have someone on the other end of the spectrum to make a presentation. <laughs> so I said to Roy, let me get this straight. What you really are saying you want a player to speak that had limited talent, limited scoring ability, was slow, couldn't really jump, played a little, and contributed some. Is that right? And Roy said yes. And I said, well, I'm your man. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Mickey Bell, from Phil Ford, from so many of his great players, and the aforementioned Roy Williams, you're hearing his name a lot. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life of Dean Smith here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with the life of Dean Smith. We're celebrating his life, and we're hearing from so many of the people who knew him, from great players to not so great players, as you're about to hear from Mickey Bell, who continues to talk about all the debts of gratitude he owed this great coach. Besides, how could I say no? Coach Smith never said no to any of requests I ever made from him. Well, I'll take that back. When I was a senior, I went up to Coach Smith and I said, Coach, when we go in the four corners, do you think I should be the one in the middle of the four corners handling the ball instead of Phil Ford? (laughs) And I remember his answer. He just said, no. (laughs) Like you over last week, I have been reading and listening to all the tributes to Coach Smith. They've made me smile. They've made me reflect. And yes, they made me cry. But I'm so pleased that through these tributes, Coach Smith is now understood by everyone around the world of how great he was. Over the years, my friends who never met Coach sometimes would come up to me and say, Mickey, was he that good? What was so special about him? And that really is an impossible thing to answer completely. For how do I explain that yes, he was a great coach, but he was even a better person. How do I explain to someone that life, his life was guided by principles and he never ever wavered from them? Yes, we all have things we believe in, but how many of you can say that you never waver from them? How do you explain to someone how he made all that played for him a man? Someone who challenged us every day to get better on the court and off the court. He coached you to be a better basketball player for four years. He coached you to be a man for a lifetime. How do I explain to someone all the life lessons he taught us while we were here? Lessons like the power of his positive words. He was the most positive man I ever met. He was always encouraging you. Now he could get mad, Uh, I think all the players here knew that when that whistle blew hard, he clapped his hands together and said, get on the line, we'll get something accomplished today. We were in trouble. But he was always positive. It was always when we make the free throw, not if we make the free throw. When we steal the ball versus if we steal the ball. The glass to Coach Smith was always half full. How do I explain to someone that everything he did was with dignity and class. He never talked about winning, only improving. He never embarrassed a player. He was both a humbled winner and a gracious loser. He never uttered a single cuss word while I was at Carolina. And believe me, my play deserved a couple of cuss words. (laughs) How do I explain to someone the lesson of loyalty? You saw that every year during senior day. No matter the opponent, no matter how highly ranked they were, or no matter how important the game was, the seniors were going to start. His principle of loyalty far exceeded his goal of winning. How do I explain to someone the lesson that little things do matter? Did you fully touch the line in sprints? Did you help your teammate up once he dove on the floor? Are you on time? I look at every player right here that played for him. They're all nodding their heads because we knew that on time the Coach Smith meant five minutes early. 
And his lesson there was that there was no shortcuts in the game, just like there's no shortcuts in life. He always said little things equate to huge success. How do I explain the lessons of preparation leads to calmness? Duke game down eight, 17 seconds. All these stories you've heard were true. I was in the huddle. I'm leaning over his left shoulder. He says, we're in great shape. <laughs> we got them right where we want them. <laughs> Isn't this fun? Because you see, we had prepared or practice so much for late game situations. He was totally calm and positive. His calmness against adversity is something I try to do even today. How do I explain the life lessons that family and friends are the most important? There's a special bond among all the Carolina basketball family. We might be generations apart, yet we know we were part of something very special, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Other, sco other schools have tried to emulate what Coach Smith created, but there is only one Carolina. <clears throat> when my son was born, I received a handwritten note congratulating me on the birth of my son, Michael. Now, I'd been out of school for many, many years. I didn't call him. I didn't tell him the name of my son. Yet he took the time out to write me a note congratulating me on his birth. And when I marveled at this later when I saw him, his response was, Mickey, that's what friends do. Wow. It is well documented how Coach Smith's innovations impacted the game of basketball. The four corners, secondary break, have all been adopted by coaches both here and abroad. One of his innovations transcended basketball. It's now seen in all team sports. That, that innovation is pointing at your teammate after a great play. You saw it on a key play in the recent Super Bowl. Tom Brady throws a pass to the receiver, the receiver jumps up, points back at Brady, and Brady points back at him. It was Coach Smith's way of thanking the player that had just made the pass. Because to Coach Smith, it was all about team and teammate. Just think, that simple gesture epitomized what Coach Smith was all about. If he was here today, as Billy said, he would really not like this uh, praise on him. He would be up here pointing at people. He would say, thank you, players. He would say, thank you, Coach Guthridge. He would say, thank you, students. He would say, thank you, Roy Williams. And I think all of us should thank Roy Williams for keeping the values that Coach Smith created ongoing here in Chapel Hill. And that point to a pastor was the biggest deal. No one had ever seen it before. Guys pointing at each other and giving each other credit immediately and spontaneously on a court. People copied the North Carolina way, but it was the North Carolina way. Mickey Bell went on to thank his coach in these final words. For 40 years, every time I saw a coach, he would always say, thank you. And I'm not sure what he thought me, was thanking me for, but today I want to thank him. I want to thank him for giving a guy with limited t talent, remember the guy that couldn't jump, couldn't shoot, couldn't run, a chance to be part of the basketball family. Thank you, coach, thank you. And in closing, if your friends, if your friends come up to you, if your children, 
or even if your grandchildren come up and ever ask you, what was Coach Smith like? Simply reply, he was the best. Thank you. And then came up Phil Ford, one of the greatest point guards in college history, ended up coaching at North Carolina, and he started things off with a funny story. It must have been my second or third game, my first year as an assistant coach here back on the staff. And the first two games, I didn't say anything. You know, I was really nervous. I was in awe, you know. But this particular game, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach this game. I'm going to help out. So, you know, J.R. was playing. And we'd come down court. we change sides of the court with the ball, like we were taught to do, make three or four passes, throw it into J.R., JR would kick it out. He'd get a little deeper. We'd kick it back into him. He'd miss a one-foot jump hook. The other team would come down the court, make one pass, guy shoot a three-point shot, and we got a hand in the face, and it went in. So this happened three or four times down the court, and I say, I'm going to coach a little bit right now. I say, hey, coach, you think we ought to call a timeout? He looks at me with a straight face and says, what are we going to tell them? You know, we're getting the shots we want to get. They're taking the shots we want them to take. That was my first lesson in coaching right there, I'm telling you. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of these talks. And wait till you hear Roy Williams. It's just worth it's. It's worth the wait, folks. And by the way, Phil Ford, when he was recruited by Dean Smith, said this in an article right after his death. My mom, when she first met him, thought he was the dean of the school. That's the way Mr. Smith carried himself, like the dean of an academic program. And that more than 95% of his players graduated is a record that would make any college dean proud. When we come back, more on the life of Coach Dean Smith, his story, his players' stories, North Carolina's story, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Coach Dean Smith, and you're going to be hearing more from Phil Ford, other players, and of course, Coach Roy Williams, what a speech he gives, it's worth the wait, and all of this happened at the Dean Dome, as it's affectionately called, on the bucolic, beautiful campus at the University of North Carolina, where Coach Smith taught young men how to be grown men for decades. Phil Ford, by the way, before we go to another clip and his talk, He said this about Coach Smith. He was about the only coach who told me I was not going to start. But my mom sat me down and explained to me that when I was a senior, I could then be assured that Coach Smith wouldn't be promising another high school All-America my starting spot when he was a freshman. And I would never have thought about it that way. Right there and then, Coach Smith was teaching me how to be a man and how to think like one. Back to Phil Ford's speech. And he starts to get emotional right about here. 
Because of my Christian belief, I, I do believe that Coach is in a better place right now, uh, especially seeing how he was the last couple of years. But the human side of me, you know, I still want to go by his office. I would go by his home with Mrs. Smith and, and his office with Brent and Miss Woods, and they would make him smile. And, you know, I, I still want to have lunch with him, and I still want to push him out to his van. But uh, I do know one day that I'll see him, and I'm really going to miss him. And if there's a model of how we should live our lives, I mean, we need no, look no further than Coach's life because I'm honored, I'm truly honored to have been, to have played for and been an assistant coach to the greatest coach ever. Not basketball, the greatest coach. I'm going to miss you, Coach. And next up, and by the way, you're seeing every race and ethnicity, every speech style, every religious type. Up comes this gigantic, tall, skinny, white kid, seven feet tall, outstanding UNC player, Eric Montross. And these are the words that came to his mind about coach. Humility. Conviction. Dedication. Compassion. Loyalty. Bravery and love are a few words which I now know describe Coach Smith. But in 1988, I knew Coach Smith only as a winning coach. When my high school basketball coach said to me, would you be interested in hearing from the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith, my answer was yes. Later that summer, I pulled my truck to a stop in front of the open doors of our gymnasium, and one of my teammates ran out of the gym into the parking lot, and he said, you'll never believe who's here to watch you play in a pickup game. It's Dean Smith. And he's sitting in a rickety old plastic chair in the back corner. You see, even in Indiana, a state with their own legendary coach and Bob Knight, Coach Smith evoked emotion and respect. My father remembers early in my recruitment wanting to learn more about Coach Smith, so he and I began to read the book, The Carolina Corporation. It was then that we began to see a sketch of what would later become a deep understanding of Carolina basketball under head coach Dean Smith. In the fall of 1992, I sat with my Tar Heel teammates, many of whom are here today, in the locker room just back here. And we were setting goals for the upcoming season. We came to an agreement at the end of that meeting that our goal would be to end the season in New Orleans. The next day in our locker, and you guys remember this, was an 8 by 10 picture taped in the corner of our mirrors, where it stayed all season long. The image in that picture was of the scoreboard inside the New Orleans Superdome, and it said, the University of North Carolina, 1993 national champions. 
The famed poet Robert Frost said, The afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Upon Coach Smith's passing, ESPN's Marty Smith used that quote to describe Coach Smith as the afternoon, and so many others, including his opposing coaches, the morning. Coach Smith has had a profound effect on our lives. For many of us and for many of you, the first thing we think of is a magical comeback, a championship, or a victory over a rival. But more impressive than those on-court achievements is the indelible mark he has left upon society. As a respected leader in the community, he stood tall for what he knew was right and garnered respect because of it. He's long been lauded for his efforts, but was shy to receive this attention because to him, it seemed like the only morally correct stance to take. And however great his passion was towards the game that he loved, it was displayed tenfold to us as his players. He brought the fight for desegregation to college sports and used the game of basketball as a vehicle to carry the message, a faith-based message of humanity onto a national stage. Coach Smith delivered this message publicly, but his message was not for show. He administered it to us as players as well. He mandated that unless he had a letter from our parents excusing us that we be in a place of worship once a week, he encouraged us to find something we were passionate about outside of the game of basketball and to share the same dedication we had for our sport with that cause. There was a recognition that basketball was not what should wholly define our lives. And for many of us, that way of thinking has been embraced. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Jr. said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Among many of the off-court experiences designed to give us a broader sense of appreciation for the opportunities we had was a trip to Butner Prison, where we practiced in front of some of the most forgotten individuals in our society. Numerous trips to children's hospitals also brought us face-to-face -face with the very spirit that made our sport so popular and increased our awareness that the world was not made up entirely of individuals as fortunate as we were. A familiar thought for the day used by Coach Smith is the serenity prayer from theologian and fellow Medal of Freedom winner Reinhold Niebuhr. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Leaders are unique in how they convey their beliefs. Coach Smith, he led with courage and wisdom and by example, giving all of us the opportunity to focus the lens through which we looked at life. 
You're not going to hear many NBA and college athletes sound like that, folks, and that's coming straight from a father figure and coach named Dean Smith. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Coach Roy Williams. And by the way, Smith won the Medal of Freedom in 2013, and not many coaches win that kind of an award. The man who brought up so many young men and turned them into men, the legend, the coach, the man, Dean Smith's story, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the final segment in this hour-long celebration of one of the great men, one of the great coaches, one of the great teachers in American life. And we love to celebrate teachers, and the best coaches are just that. Listen to our Bear Bryant Hour, our Vince Lombardi Hour. They're startling. And what you can learn as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a school leader, as a church leader, well, it's all there, folks. Listen to the way these young men talk 30, 40 years after playing for them. It's as if it was yesterday. And they still maintain relationships. By the way, Michael Jordan said this, Other than my parents, no one had a bigger influence on my life than him. He was more than a coach. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my second father. And by the way, this man racked up 879 wins, a 776 winning percentage, 17 ACC championships. And boy, that's tough. That is the tough basketball conference. And of course, two national championships. But here's why he's really remembered. It ain't the wins, folks. And now, the man who played as a JV player for Coach Smith went to Kansas, then came back to North Carolina, current coach Roy Williams. If you ever hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Dean said this, you know it's a lie. Because <laughs> I've never referred to him anything other than Coach Smith. If you hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Bill Guthridge, that Bill did this, that's a lie too because he's always been Coach Guthridge. And Coach Smith used to say, he'd call and he'd say, Coach Williams, Dean Smith. I said, Coach, how you doing? (laughs) We're partners playing some good golf matches, and I'd always call him Coach, and he'd say, you can call me Dean. I said, no, sir, I can't. And I never have. No, sir, I can't. Here's Roy Williams talking about something that startled him as a young player, and it had to do with where Coach Smith took his players to practice. I even dreamed of Coach Smith last night. Gospel truth. I hope I never hit another golf ball if that's a lie. So Coach knows I'm telling the truth. But some of the things about Coach Smith, and one thing I thought of when it was said something about Coach taking him to Butner and practicing. It's one of the times I disagreed with Coach Smith. He took one of the teams when I was here to the state prison, maximum security prison. Everybody there had at least two life sentences. And they closed that door, that gate, and it is a scary feeling. And we're in there and we're doing a little clinic and everybody's having a good time. And Coach says, 
Well, let's scrimmage those guys. Okay. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, Coach, you referee. Now, there's some players here that remember that. I said, Coach, you think I'm calling a foul on one of those guys? You are crazy. <laughs> and that was the truth. I didn't call a single foul. And not a lot of coaches are taking their boys to prisons to scrimmage, folks. Dean was always teaching. Roy Williams says here, with Dean Smith, with Coach Smith, the players were always first. The other thing I remembered last night about Coach Smith is he always wanted to make sure that you guys knew you were first, more important than anybody else. And I've tried to do that for 27 years as a head coach. One day, I was talking to a player, and I have a rule when a player's in the office, nobody interrupts. And if somebody calls, I don't take the call. And Jennifer Holbrook, who's sitting over here, was my secretary at that time. I've got a player in the office, and she opened the door and stuck her head in, and I looked, and I said, what? Because you just don't do that. And she said, former President Bush is on the phone. I said, would you please tell him we'll call him back? True story. So when the player and myself, when we were finished and the player left, I walked out and I said, was that really President Bush or somebody like Mickey Bell? You know. And she said, no, the Secret Service called first. And I said, we'll see if you can get him on the line. And so she got him on the line and I talked to him and he wanted to see if he could get two tickets to the next game. Swear to goodness. So two or three years ago, the Final Four was in Houston, and they honored President Bush. And Jimmy Nance was the MC, and Jimmy got up and told that story about Coach Roy Williams wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> and President Bush got up and said, the conversation I had with Coach Williams was fantastic because he said his players were more important than anybody. And that came from Coach Smith. And here's Roy Williams talking about the encouraging ethos that Smith drove at North Carolina. I would like to encourage all of you to tell people what they mean to you. At the private service with the family and the letterman, I told them a story that I had never told Coach Smith that I loved him. And I've regretted that. And I've told my players, encourage them to tell people that mean really mean something to you, tell them how much they mean to you. Coach Smith knew what he meant to me. I tried to give him a great deal of credit because I told the truth. Everything that I did, I got from him. Now, yesterday, I didn't guard the four corners quite as well as he would have wanted me to. And I look out, and I think Coach Larry Brown, who was one of the first guys to run the four corners, up here is Phil Ford, the best ever, Kenny Smith, Dick Grubar, 
I tried to give him credit every time I did anything, but I never really told him what he meant. So my players are sitting back there at the back, and they know this is the truth. We should all spend time telling people what they truly mean to us. I had a coach one time that said, if you coach a guy 30 years later, and I'm from the South, so guy means boy or girl, either one, so it makes no difference. But if you coach someone that 30 years later, you can still see something that you gave him and to really make sure it's something positive. Every day our lives will show something that Coach Smith gave us. The way we treat people, the way we treat people with respect and dignity, and the way we care, because that's what Coach Smith did. And here's Roy Williams closing things out. We're very fortunate to be here together in a wonderful, wonderful family. The Smith family, I thank you. We love you. Trying to speak on behalf of every one of us. Everybody has negatives. Everybody has pluses. Coach Smith had more pluses than anybody I've ever known. Let's raise our hand and point and thank him for the assist. Thank you. And again, we're at the Dean Dome. We're taking you there. And this was last year, but we'll play this every year because great teaching is great teaching and it's eternal. These themes last forever. Up last, to close out the ceremonies, Dean Smith's pastor, who he was very close to, and that's Reverend Robert Seymour. And he closed out everything with these words. What a wonderful tribute to have this huge crowd here today to honor his memory. But Dean was an extraordinarily humble man. He was known for his humility in giving other people the thanks and attention. And if he could have anticipated this gathering today, I think there's a good chance he might have said, don't do it. But this gathering was not for Dean. This gathering was for us. And it's so true. And by the way, the Reverend then went on to read a little poem that was absolutely beautiful. And I wanted to share one last story that I know about Dean Smith. And it came from a conversation I'd had with a friend turns out a country club had been courting Coach Smith, and Coach Smith was very close to John Thompson, who happened to be black. This was in the 1980s, and Dean Smith had a question for that country club. Can I bring Coach Thompson? And they said, well, no, African-Americans aren't allowed to play at this club. And they go, well, so then with all due respect, I ain't about to join. And he said, and that was the nature and character of Dean Smith. And this was the premier club where all the connected folks were, all the donors were. And he was teaching then. Not too long after that club desegregated, his word got out that Dean wasn't going to play there. 
always leading, always teaching, trying always to do the right thing. Not a perfect man, no one is. But my goodness, Dean Smith's life celebrated at the Dean Dome. We'll do it every year here. His story, all of his boys' story, in a sense, Chapel Hill's story while he was there. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between. And your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And while you're there, subscribe to our free newsletter. We'll send you our best three stories every week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now it's time for our My Car series, where our fellow Americans tell stories about a car that they've once owned. And today's feature is from Barry McGuire, the CEO of his third-generation family company, McGuire's, which is the largest car care products company in the country. And our own Alex Cortez was with Barry in his car collection when he told us about purchasing his favorite car, one that he was trying to buy just because he wanted a car from the same year that his family's company was founded, 1901. So I found this 1901 car at an auction. They have these classic car auctions where they sell nothing but old cars. That's where I'll be next week. I'll be at the same where I bought this. And there's seven other auctions going on at the same time. They're huge, probably $150 million worth of cars that we sold this week in Scottsdale. 164 there now for, sold them 163 and a half. It's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy marketplace. So I saw this in the brochure and I decided I'd like to get it. And I was at another auction and friends that were at the auction where this was, I said, would you buy it for me? But here's my limit, I want to go over this amount. So by the time I get there, they just bought the car and they paid more than I wanted for it, fortunately, because I wouldn't have bought it. The number one car collector in the world is a guy named Ebert Lauman. Uh, he has the Lauman Museum. It's on the grounds of the Queen in The Hague in Holland. The collection itself and the cars and the building probably worth a billion dollars. This guy, he knows every, he, he is the expert on collector cars. He can buy anything he wants. And he had picked out this car as one he wanted to buy. And it turned out that when he went in to buy it, it just got off the block, he just missed it. I got it, he would have outbid me, he would have got the car, but I got it. So he comes out, he says, who bought this car? He said, Barry, he looked at me because he knows I'm in these kind of cars. I'm not in these cars. He said, Barry, you bought this car? Yeah. And he's looking at me, he says, oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, this is hilarious. He could buy this with pocket change. I mean, this is a nothing car. He's got cars that are worth 20, whatever, million dollars. You know. He said, I have this car, but it's not correct. This one's correct. We've since taken this car completely apart 
and they talk about numbers matching. This is the real deal. This is all 1901 stuff. The numbers is in all the parts. Everything in this car is original, which makes it a very special car. He says, I have one, but it's not correct. He says, can I take pictures? I'll make some of these parts. I said, of course you can. So he says, so you know about this car? I said, oh, it's a Duryea. I'm thinking made in France or something. I don't know. I just wanted to have a 1901 car. He says, you know what? It has three cylinders. Now this guy is taller than me, and he's, he's the most passionate car guy I've ever seen. He's eloquent. He's, 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 he's just, I mean, the guy, his presentation is just, I love the way he talks. I, I, I did a TV show with every car in the collection. This car, it just, it just makes my heart pattern. This, this, this. He's, he's, every car in the collection, he talks to me, so personally involved with it. So he's really, so you get the idea. He's, you know why this car has three cylinders? I mean, you don't have three cylinders. You have two, four, six, eight. Because of vibration and stuff and balance, you don't have a three-cylinder car. You know why this car has three cylinders? And here he said, oh, you know why this car has three cylinders. I said, no. He looked at me and said, what? You don't know why it has three cylinders? I said, no. He said, well, you know they're Christians. Now, he knows I'm a Christian. He's not a Christian. He's a collector with all this knowledge. He said, well, you know they're Christians. I said, who? <laughs> he says, the Duryea brothers. Oh, God. <laughs> Turns out the Duryea brothers created the first American car, gas-powered car, in the 1800s, 1886. They created the first production car. They're the first time to ever make a second car like the first car. So they have the record of the first production car. They have the record of winning the first automobile race. I mean, there's all kinds of history. I didn't know what it is. Anyway, he said, so he says, you know they're Christians. I said, who? He says, the Duryea brothers. The Duryea brothers? He says, yeah. He says, in fact, they call themselves Trinitarians. Are, are you, yeah. He says, and look at this. He says, you know why there's a fish on the side, right? Well, I had looked at that and I thought, that is the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> why would anybody carve a fish into a car? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. That's just bizarre. I'll buy it anyway, it's 1901. Why I just stupid, you know? He's, you know why the fish on the side of the car? Well, it was art. Everything was art. So they put the, here's the whole tail of the fish, right, elegantly done. He's, you know why they put the fish in the side of the car? And I said, hey, Barry! <laughs> he said, the sign of the fish, the early Christians. Are you kidding me? He says, and he comes over to me and he says, do you not know this is the only car ever made to honor God? What? And I got it. I own it. I mean, can you believe it? <laughs> so I'm always looking at ways to talk about God in, in my car guy situation. So every chance I get. They always want to know what kind of cars I have. I got one car that's really interesting, and I tell them this story. What have I just done? I just told them there is a God who works miracles that's, that's, that's central to my life, and I didn't offend anybody. You know, you find ways to share your faith so you don't offend anybody. I think there's about 20 of them in existence, and I think there's only two or three that are running. But none of them, but none of them like that. And great job to Monty, who helped us with the piece. And Monty, 
is a student at Hillsdale College. And what a great find. And thanks also to Barry McGuire and what passion he has for this car, this car that he just had to own because he needed a car from 1901 because that's when his family's company was founded. And it turns out he found the only car ever made to honor and celebrate God. What a good story. Barry McGuire's story, his car story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories. And this show is produced in a small town called Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. And we love music on this show and storytelling. And this next story, well, for anyone out there who plays music just because they love it or plays a sport just because they love it and don't get famous, because most of us don't get famous. Most of us aren't B.B. King or Johnny Cash or Elvis Presley. And this next story is about just such a person. Jesse got out around town and headed down to Clarksdale, Mississippi and found this story. We're in Clarksdale, Mississippi at the home of local bluesman Lucius Spiller. Born in St. Louis, 1962, he started playing in church on a guitar that his father gave him. My dad was born and raised in Macon, Mississippi, down in Knox County. He moved to St. Louis. Um, he had 11 brothers and sisters, so um, yeah, I moved up to St. Louis from Macon um, when he was a youngster, I guess, eight or nine. And my mom, she's from Cape Girada. Um, my dad's family, you know, I guess that's where I get my music genes from. Well, my mom, you know, sang at church. That's around. 12 and trying to start playing bass at church. So I was like the bassist for our church for years and years. Where I grew up playing uh, structured drums in elementary school, fifth grade, on through high school. Like bass guitar at church. And like a bunch of my friends are clueless that I was. We had a few basement bands. Lucius has played thousands of gigs at thousands of bars and churches and festivals over the years. Too many to keep track of. But he still remembers his first real performance. Yeah, uh, on Easter program, at church I sang uh, <laughs> a sun, uh, sunbeam. A sunbeam? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can remember at the end of the uh, song, I was like, improvised. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, Sunbeam, Sunbeam, Jesus on me, Sunbeam, Sunbeam. I'll be a Sunbeam for him. And boom, boom. And I can remember churches, you know, just laughing or clapping and stuff. I don't know. And I had to rehearse that part. You know, I just stuck that in there. I was about maybe four, maybe. As Lucius continued to play in church, his house became the house that all the other kids in the neighborhood would come to. 
just so they could play music together. Because we were often um, Little League Baseball, but we always got drums and guitars for Christmas, so every time after a game, my father was coach, all the teammates wanted to come over and, and like, just, you know, um, seventh, seventh grade, maybe, about seventh grade, we started a little basement band, so you call them basement something, the same little sound. High school I went to, they um, focused on fine arts and stuff, and it was, it was like the real talent gene pool from our area. Matter of fact, Tennessee William Ford graduated from our high school back in, like in the early 1900s. Lucius Spiller eventually graduated with a degree in elementary art, influenced by his father and other musician relatives. Stevie Wonder was another big inspiration. Music is my life, man. There was always music in our house growing up, like when the songs, um, see one of the songs in the Key of Life, um, double vinyl, plus like 45, and the songbook came out. I think it cost like $14, and that was a lot of money back in the 70s, so me and my brother saved up. I remember put $7 a piece. <laughs> and when we got it, we're just listening to that constantly. You can usually catch Lucius down at a place called Reds on Wednesday nights in Clarksdale. And true to his roots, you can also find him playing at a small church on Sunday mornings. As far as right now, uh, I play guitar over at this real small church called St. Mark's. Um, yeah, I'm talking about this little bitty, just what they call a storefront church, like where you take a whole storefront and turn it into a little couple of pews. And, you know, to me, the church is in, in your heart, you know. And all about the new suits and, yeah, big choirs and, you know, big church band. So, yeah. Matter of fact, we don't even have a choir in the church. We just... Scold's flow. Walk with me, Lord. Walk with me. Walk with me, Lord. Please walk with me. While I'm on this teacher's journey. Walk with me, Lord, walk with me. Hold my hand, Lord, hold my hand. Hold my hand, Lord, please hold my hand while I'm on.
while I'm on this journey. Walk with me, Lord. Walk with me. Is it walk with me, Lord? Um, it's all Negro spiritual um, from way back, way back. First time I performed live was at my grandma Spiller's funeral, because that was one of her favorite songs. Like I say, she passed away, she was like 95. And she still had her Mississippi waves all them years. Uh, she was a housekeeper, you know, raised uh, these uh, rich white lawyers' kids growing up, because I can remember them all coming over to her house at Christmas time and bringing her all kind of stuff. And uh, pretty much as a Mississippi housekeeper, Type way, and uh, to that day, till she died, still like dressed like Harry Tubman, you know. Uh, I guess they have one like kind of those men's shoes. It's probably still uh, old school, deep down in different parts of Mississippi where the old, old ladies dressed like that, yeah. And she still talked with, um, hey, you chaps, you know, that, that Mississippi dialect. Um, and I sang it at her funeral. Um, that was the first time I ever sang that song. And, uh, I knew the song, and um, I don't know. I always sing that. You know, people probably say, "What are you doing singing church?" You know, up here in the club at the blues club. Um, well, my personal opinion is uh, all music, um, one way or another, stems from the blues, whatever genre it is, whether it's pop. Plus, today's country, modern day music. And I always sing their song, just, you know, I feel it is a clearing, cleansing um, medium. You know, when I go into places to cleanse the, it's that bad juju out of the bad karma. Hovering by my suitcase. Trying to find a warm place to spend the night A heavy rain falling Think I hear your voice calling It's all right It's a rain And there you have it, Lucius Spiller's story, a musician's story, a blues story, here on Our American Stories. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way.
Let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and anytime we can play Alison Krauss in the right context, we do. No one does the American songbook better. Straight as an arrow. Let the song do the talking. And it's time for our regular final thought segment. This is when we hear final thoughts from people who are dying, and also final thoughts from folks about those who have passed. A eulogy, a written tribute, anything that stirs the soul. And we've taken a few from this particular gentleman who writes periodically for the Wall Street Journal because he's a doctor. And doctors know firsthand a lot about death. And this is a man who has not insulated himself from the emotional impact of patients that die. And that makes him remarkable. This week's Final Thoughts feature is a powerful one from Dr. E. Wesley Ely. And again, he's a professor of medicine and critical care at the Nashville VA Medical Center and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Ely recently told the story in the Wall Street Journal, and it was called A Swimming Pool in the ICU. He graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Swimming pool in the ICU? You must be you nuts. Must be nuts. The nurse's voice was almost lost among the whooshing ventilator and infusion pumps. Five days earlier, we had admitted Benny, a Vietnam veteran, to the intensive care unit of our VA hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Frail and wrinkled, he had a look of utter confusion and a furrowed brow that would pluck the heartstrings of even the most calloused physician. Decades spent in southern tobacco fields left him looking old enough to remember Hoover's presidency. Double pneumonia and too much sedation made him delirious. As his attending physician, I was thankful for his family. His daughter and son, Laura and Lynn, implored, take good care of dad, he's all we have. Seeing him on a ventilator is terrifying, they said, but we believe in miracles. While loving, such a mindset could become problematic since their father's situation had the makings of a fatal illness despite our best technology. With antibiotics and fluids, Benny improved dramatically and was taken off the ventilator several days later. That same night, though, a massive stroke paralyzed his entire left side and he went back on life support. We quickly administered clot-busting medicine and he rallied remarkably regaining movement of his left arm and leg. The following day, the intern reported, his delirium has cleared and he's mouthing words around the endotracheal tube despite this wicked aspiration pneumonia. I sensed an unexpected window of opportunity. 
We revisited Benny's life goals in light of what had happened and spoke directly about the big picture. With his children looking on, I held Benny's hand and looked him in the eyes. Choosing my words based on what I knew about his background and the family's expectation of miracles, I said, Benny, just like tobacco plants eventually wither and wilt, so do we. You have improved in some ways, but overall, you're very weak. How can we serve you best? The next morning, Laura and Lynn were upbeat, which confused me, since Benny looked weaker than ever. They pointed to words on a whiteboard in the room, explaining they were Benny's goals. Stable vital signs, baptism. I spotted Kelly, our charge nurse, smiling like a cat who'd swallowed a canary. In her arms, she clutched a box containing a large vinyl swimming pool. First, I made sure this was actually Benny's request and not the family's. My next thought was that we'd have a chaplain anoint him with holy water in his bed. But Laura disagreed. Jesus wasn't sprinkled, Doc. He was dumped. A senior physician protested that the patient was on a ventilator and said he'd never seen a bedside baptism like this in 50 years of practice. There was no shortage of opinions about whether this was appropriate, safe, or even possible. A large area next to Benny's bed was cleared and an electric pump inflated the pool. When a large multi-person bucket brigade proved too difficult, an engineer rigged dialysis tubing to circulate the pool with a stream of warm water. Benny was then hoisted high into the air via a patient transfer lift. And the ventilator was unplugged before he was lowered into the pool. Lynn gently took his father, the man who'd showed him how to farm, into his arms. Following the cherished Christian tradition, he slowly submerged Benny's head completely under the water, saying, Dad, I baptize you in the name of the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that On cue, the palliative care social worker began belting out Amazing Grace. The rest of us stood frozen in time. I once was First out of the water was blue corrugated ventilator tubing. Then his face appeared around the breathing tube. Benny's huge smile seemed to say, better late than never. When he died a week later, Laura implored me to tell other people about her dad, hoping his experience would show them that we can all become strong through our weakness. In fact, I've seen scores of patients and families use profound outer wasting as a catalyst for deep inner renewal. The most two important frames of our life are birth and death. We typically associate baptism with the former, yet Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism to indicate the formative next step that dying represents for our journey. The ICU team's bold yet careful response to Benny's unusual request taught me an enduring lesson regarding sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. 
in all the surrounding insanity of the hospital that day, diving deeply into Benny's life through his baptism on the breathing machine allowed all of us to be reborn too. Being with him in that pool and rising with him out of it, we walked into others' lives better prepared to serve them. And it doesn't get better than that, folks, and that's why we love running these stories. Uh, you know, you got to hold back a tear listening to that. And I love that definition of empathy and sympathy. You know, Bono said of Johnny Cash when he was buried, Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned, he sings with the damned. And I think that's why Cash was so loved. And God bless the folks who did this amazing thing. Uh, and most folks in most hospitals just wouldn't have bothered. Too difficult. Splash a little water on his head. That's it. That's all we got. We'll end here as we started. Our final thought segment. Alison Krauss. Studying about that good old way And you shall wear the starry crown Good Lord, show me the way Oh, sinners, let's go down Let's go down, come on down Oh, sinners, let's go down Down in the river to American Stories, and now it's time for our Voices of Main Street segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's nothing like seeing a small business succeed. And when a small business can save a town, oh my goodness, that's even better. And today we're talking about a family business that did just that. It became an internet sensation, revived a dying hobby, and brought new life to the small town of Hamilton, Missouri. Quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick, and Comfortable Blanket, a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details. While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything. Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, in our town here, we have 13 shops. They're all fabric-specific. So when you go into a shop, it's going to have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here. You can sleep here. It's just a great place to be. That was Jenny Doan, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters. And when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world 
and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world, and every year thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter. I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, when you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins, it's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful or how old the fabric is or anything like that, but that quilt is going to be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're going to take care of them, what are we going to do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it and you give it to the Goodwill, someone's going to go along and go, I can't believe I found this. But how did this all start? How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out, it was a family effort, led by one of her sons, Alan. It was 2008. Market crashed. My kids wanted to, they got worried about what we were going to do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking me, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know, it's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there, does it, are people really, are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together. You know, long story short, they, they wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house. It was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here, and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable, and we started machine quilting for people. And Alan is a computer guy, so when he, he bought the machine, he started looking at what quilting was doing online, and it had not yet made the jump online, and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online, and I said, sure, what's a tutorial? And he said, well, I want you to teach people to quilt online. And, uh, and I said, how will people even find it? And he said, we're going to put it on YouTube. And I said, isn't that where those crazy teenagers put their videos? And he's like, yes, but it's going to be our center for learning. And I was like, uh, nobody's going to go look on the computer to learn how to do something. You know, I couldn't see it. He insisted it was true. And so we started doing videos online. People started watching. People then called and said, hey, that fabric you used, you know, uh, I really want some of that. And I would say, well, it's mine. It's my fabric. You can't use it, have it, <laughs> you know. And they'd be like, well, I want some. And I said, the kids, maybe we should think about doing this. And we have over 300 tutorials now. And maybe, you know, I don't know how many over, but I know over. And a new one comes every Friday. Every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically, in a nutshell, how that all began. Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri Star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri Star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business. When you start, you know, everybody's in the groove of the picture. It's like, we're doing it! We're doing it! It's going to be amazing. You know, it's the same as, like, you, you get married, and, like, your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best! And then fast forward five years, and it's like, no, we're still really happy, but we know that this, you know, the, you know it doesn't come free. It takes some work. Or we're having a baby! Look, it's right there! And then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy. I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. 
you know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, gleeful, you know, 20 year olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy. We are happy, but like, we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost. Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure. They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. Missouri Star spends so much time renovating that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew. When we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew not just growing as a business. So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them, you know, if they, if, if they leave here today, they go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like hire me and I'll come and do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've developed a skill that's worth markedly more than what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day. And that like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better. As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, a second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins. My name is Manny Caldera, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter. And I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California, and I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on the hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A. Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Doves were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence. So one of the, one of the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age, um, we are. We have more time, and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now, um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, 
It, be, it was the center place for stringed cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town and that town became the center for string. It would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize, there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement. And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. What started as a hobby has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession. And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And... What a story, folks. Jenny and her family, 400 employees, one small town changed forever. This is the power of small business to change lives. And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at DefendMainStreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story here on Our American Stories.